following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take, this mi- take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Good morning. morning. If you haven't already, you can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. A few summers back, my brothers and I did something that we hadn't done in nearly 20 years. We had a sleepover. But rather than going down into our mom's basement with our sleeping bags, we headed up to the high peaks of the Adirondacks in upstate New York. It's where we went as kids to summer camp and where both my brothers later served as camp counselors. It was a great few nights away in the mountain, just reconnecting after years away and celebrating all of God's kindness in our lives with our own children and our families. Um, but on the last morning, as we were heading out, little did we know that the, the real adventure was about to begin. We were just a few miles from the car, and uh, we came upon this central lake with this big 500-foot sheer rock cliff that looked up onto a ridge and uh, several trails that kind of merged onto where that lake was. And as we were going by, my, my older brother, he said, Man, I wish we had planned this better because I've actually taken groups of teenagers up that. We free soloed up that all the way up to the ridge, and it's incredible. But you have to be really careful because three quarters away up that ridge, there was, there was a, uh, like a false tree line, just a, a patch of trees in the midst of the bare rock. 
And if you followed that, thinking it was the top, it would actually drop you down into an enclave where there was no escape except for help from the rangers. And I kid you not, as soon as he explained that, we started hearing terrified cries for help from the very spot. Well, he burst right into action. He started taking off his Crocs, and you can judge him for, uh, for wearing Crocs to, to hike. Like, you could question his judgment, but you can't question his resolve because it was the only time he had the action straps engaged. Um, <laughs> Like he, he meant business. And so he starts taking off his Crocs and he's getting like a side bag ready. And he says, all right, look, two miles back from where we came, there's a ranger station. Patrick, I want you to go and tell everyone that you see along the way what's going on and get the rangers. They'll know what to do. He looked at my brother, Paul. He said, okay, I want you to stand here on this rock. Anyone coming from this way or this way, you tell them what's going on and they'll go and tell others. And uh, with that, he, he got ready. Dad bought an all. It had been years since he had been out in the, the, the woods. And uh, with one final look up at the rocks, he cries out, help is coming. And he dives into the water. I will spare you the suspense. Three hours after he went into the water, we were all reunited on that rock as the helicopter came flying above and the rangers propelled down from ropes and they sent down a basket and the real heroes did the work of rescuing them. But I share this story because when my brother dove into the water, I had no idea when he was coming back. I was pretty confident that he would. He even gave us some instruction. He said, if I'm not back in five hours, go to the car. If I'm not back at the car, call the rangers. I trusted that he would come back. But that really wasn't the primary thing on my mind in that moment. I knew that until he did come back, he had given me a mission and a message, one that would require all of me in, in order for this to take place, this rescue. And here in Luke's gospel, Jesus, in speaking of his own departure and eventual return in the parable of the Minas, does so with a view towards preparing his own disciples for the task that he will be entrusting to them while he is away. Now, before we press pause on where we've been in Mark's gospel and we parachute into this parable here in Luke, it would be helpful to understand the setting in which Jesus shares this story. So back up a chapter into Luke 18 in verse 35. We learn that as Jesus is approaching Jericho, he heals a blind beggar. And in verse 43, we learn that the reaction of the crowds is one of enthusiasm and anticipation because of their understanding of the kingdom. It says there, when all the peoples saw it, they gave praise to God. And so by the time we get to Luke 19, the atmosphere is electric. They are ready for the revolution. Jerusalem is on the horizon, and these people, they are ready to make Jesus their king. The only problem is Jesus, as he often does, he confounds the expectations of everyone around him. Upon arriving in Jericho to the roar of the crowds, we learn that one of the most repulsive public figures of the day, this gross sinner named Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus. It's a 
well-known story, and it's worthy of a sermon unto itself. But something worth noting about this interaction, when Zacchaeus climbs the tree seeking to see who Jesus was, as it says in verse 3, what he discovers is that Jesus is the one doing the real seeking. His eyes are already scanning the limbs of the tree, and the name of this sinner that everyone else repulsed when they heard it was on the tip of the teacher's tongue. As Jesus invites himself to lunch, extending fellowship and grace to Zacchaeus, the crowds are hushed when they see the repentance and they hear from Jesus that today, this day, salvation has come to this house. They are hushed with the words of Jesus in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's in the immediate aftermath of these events that Jesus shares his final parable before entering into Jerusalem. And he does so because in the minds of those gathered there, there was no category for a Messiah who would come twice. The parable of the minas is meant to correct the expectation of the crowd that want the expediency of the kingdom for their own benefit, but they cannot begin to fathom the suffering of the cross. Additionally, the purpose of this parable is to let his followers know that not only is he going to fail to meet the common expectations of what the Messiah was to be, namely a geopolitical ruler, but that the full realization of his kingdom was still off in the future. That it would be in the waiting between the already and the not yet of his kingdom that the people would see the power of the gospel at work in the world, even as Jesus went away. Verse 11 reveals this to us plainly. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so, with all of that set up and with these context clues, here is what I believe is the main idea of our text this morning. Until the return of King Jesus, every Christian is called to faithfully steward the gospel they have received by declaring and displaying it in the world. Until the return of King Jesus, every Christian is called to faithfully steward the gospel they have received by declaring and displaying it in the world. We'll explore this main idea by breaking the parable down into three sections. First, the cast of characters. We'll see this in verses 12 through 14. And then the coming of the king. We'll see this in verses 15 through 23. And then thirdly, the call to faithfulness. Verses 24 through 27. Cast of characters, the coming of the king, the call to faithfulness. So first, pick up with me in verse 12 as Jesus introduces us to the various characters of his story. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So right off the bat, we are introduced to the, the main character of the story, a man of noble birth. 
And Jesus' mention of this client ruler, as you will, traveling to a power broker in a distant land, this seems odd to our ears. Like, it is oddly specific. It is. Most commentators agree that this is a real-world reference that his hearers would have immediately had the connecting point in their mind. It's a real-world reference to recent first-century political drama. Some 30 years before Jesus tells this story, King Herod dies. And when he does, his kingdom is divided among his sons. And his son, Archelaus, is given the territory of Judea and the surrounding area. And Archelaus was a cruel man. There's even accounts of him slaughtering up to 3,000 Jews uh, in the temple. And so people did not want this man to have rule. And even though Herod could pass on the responsibilities of a regional overseer, the title of rex or king could only come from Rome. And so Herod received that through a various amount of circumstances, but his son, wanting the title himself, didn't have it innately. He had to go to Rome and appeal for it. And there are accounts of Jews and Palestinians together rallying around him as he went to Rome, appealing and, and ridiculing him and crying out, we don't want this man, all the way as he appeals on his journey. And so it's worth asking at this point, why would Jesus invoke imagery of such an unpopular and sinful ruler when setting up his story? After all, isn't this nobleman here in the story supposed to symbolize him? Well, first, here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not comparing either the legitimacy or the righteousness of his own reign with the illegitimacy and the unrighteousness of Archelaus. Instead, his sole purpose is to draw his hearers' attention to the fact that he too is going away. And though there will be some who contest his righteous reign, he will return triumphantly. He is coming back. Jesus isn't being mysterious. Like the nobleman in the story, after accomplishing his earthly mission of redeeming sinners back to God, Jesus will go into that distant country, that is heaven, where he will receive the reward for his suffering, and where, as the author of Hebrews says in 10, 12, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we have this nobleman representing the departure and eventual return of Christ. But in the story, before he leaves, we're introduced to another set of characters. Look on with me in verse 13. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. These 10 servants, in accordance with the story, they would have been those who recognized the nobleman as their rightful ruler, and they would have publicly declared their allegiance to him. Those who would wave the banner, so to speak, and say, this man, we want this man to reign over us. And this is the posture 
of every follower of Jesus when we surrender to his lordship, regardless of what the world may contest about his righteous reign, we want this king to reign over us. We have tasted and we have seen that he is good. He is altogether worthy of our lives and we want this king to reign over us. And like the nobleman in his parable, Jesus doesn't merely receive the surrender of his people to his lordship. He also entrusts to them a treasure and a task. Put it to work. Other translations have it as engage in business. We're not given any indication in the story as to the nature of the business that these subjects are to engage in. Um, But we saw in the setup to this story Uh, in this interaction with Zacchaeus, that the business of Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And in his absence, it would make sense that he is deploying his followers to be about the family trade, to join him in this business. But what exactly is a mina? It's an odd little word. We don't see it used anywhere else in the Gospels, but here, a mina was roughly... 100 days wages. Think about it in in today's terms. This would be just over a quarter of your annual salary. It's not nothing. It's much more than a crumpled $20 bill found in your jeans, as sweet as that is when that happens. But it's still infinitely less than a winning Powerball ticket. And when compared to Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where a talent is worth 60 mina, we see that in comparison, it's a relatively modest amount. In short, it's a trial sum to test the servant's faithfulness in the king's absence. Whereas previous parables of Jesus had expressed interest in teaching his followers how to use money, earthly resources, and their naturally endowed gifts that were given out in varying degrees for the impact on eternity, this parable is more interested in our heart's posture and our obedience in connecting the one true gospel that we have all been given equally and connecting it with the lost that God has placed around us in our seasons and our stations of life. It's been said that as we, as we look out over the map of our city of Richmond, and we see where we as members of this church are scattered throughout the great area, our homes They are like mini gospel outposts, bases from which the light and the life of the gospel go forth into the city. And even as we come together as the people of God and the fellowship that we have in the gospel, it serves as an apologetic to those around us. When we are together, the gospel is displayed in the way that, earthly speaking, It doesn't seem like it would make sense, but the love of God among us by his spirit is compelling to the world around us. We are many gospel outposts. And this means quite practically that it is no accident that we live in the neighborhoods that we live in. In fact, the very street that our house is on is not on accident. This goes for us adults and kids. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is no accident that you sit next to the kids that you sit next to in class or the teammates that you have on your sports teams or in the 
clubs that you interact with. It may be that you are the only source of the true gospel in their lives. After school activities, our fields of study, our skill sets, even our trials, our past presence, and our griefs, every detail of our lives ordained by our good and sovereign king to be actively deployed in the local economy of God's grace towards sinners. This is what it means to be about the family business. No aspect of your life is beyond the scope of God's redemptive purposes. No detail is arbitrarily entrusted to you. Ordinary gifts, the stuff of everyday life, deployed for extraordinary eternal impact. So far in this story, we've met the nobleman representing Christ, We have these 10 servants representing those who have surrendered to Christ's lordship. And then lastly, we see the subjects. Look on with me in verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Unlike the servants, the Subjects do not recognize the nobleman as their master, nor are they willing to submit to his authority. And Jesus is demonstrating here to his listeners that there can be no middle ground when it comes to an individual stance on the Son of God. Either they will love him in a life of surrender to his lordship, or they will reject him in a stance as master of their own life, trying to stand in the gap. The subjects represent here the natural state of the human heart. Our hearts before Christ found us. And the hearts of all of those around us who have yet to exclaim the name of Jesus as king of their life. This characterization of the citizens or the subjects, it's in line with what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that there is no one who does good who seeks after God. Or as Paul says in the opening verses of Romans, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. These subjects, they are not faceless enemies. They are our loved ones in our own families, held captive by sin. And we're going to come back to these lost ones in a few minutes. But now that we have met the cast of characters in this story, let's now turn our gaze onto what takes place when the nobleman returns to collect what he has entrusted. Pick back up with me in verse 15. The coming of the king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what had been gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. So of the ten servants previously mentioned, Jesus now narrows his focus onto three of them. 
The first makes 10x profit. The second makes 500%. Like even Warren Buffett would be awestruck by those types of returns. Do you notice how nowhere in this parable does it say that the first servant who made twice as much profit did so because he was more talented or more industrious or dare we say even more faithful than the second servant? Moreover, do you see here how the servants don't boast about the prophet as if it was their own doing? They are amazed. They are humbled at what happens when they put this mina into the economy. Look, Lord, what your mina did. And that's the very nature of the gospel. It does not return void. There is power in this message of what Jesus has done for us. It is amazing what you will see happen when you faithfully deploy it. All of this is significant because the implication for us is that it's not about falling into the trap of comparison. Looking at what others are receiving or seeing how God is using them in the fruitfulness of his kingdom. The emphasis is on being obedient with the portion, that one gospel that he has given you, and trusting the results of your obedience entirely to his hands. Differing details. It's going to look different from person to person, life to life. Varying results, and yet total obedience equal sacrifice. The miracle is not in the endowments of the servant. It's in the providence of God that multiplies the faithful exercise of average gifts to extraordinary effect, even as the potency of the gospel does its work of wonder in the hearts of sinners. God loves to use broken people. We don't know why other than he gets the glory. He loves to use broken people, contrite in heart to accomplish his mission. We see this in the life of the apostle Peter, right? This loudmouth fisherman simply responds to the invitation of this rabbi to leave the boat and fish for men. And Jesus rewards that one simple step of obedience with even more kingdom responsibility. Even as Peter fumbles all the way through the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, constantly speaking out of turn, constantly face-palmed moments with this guy, Peter. And yet, Jesus is there even as he fails him in the hour of his greatest need. The grace of Jesus picks him up, catches him, restores him back to the task. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? feed my sheep. And Peter does, proclaiming the gospel boldly, even to those who put Jesus on the cross. And the church grows, not without controversy, not without stumbling, but God uses these feeble efforts of obedience. And we learn later on in scripture that Jesus will, or sorry, Peter will actually fumble his way, stumble into becoming a judge of the 12 tribes of Israel in heaven. I'm not even going to pretend to understand what that all entails. To be the judge of the 12 tribes of heaven, except for this. 
Walk with Jesus long enough, step out in God-sized risk for his kingdom, and you will feel incredulous that God would choose to use you in all of your sin and what you know about the darkness of your own heart and how he has redeemed you and redeemed your story and displayed your obedience for the sake of his glory. You will be incredulous at times. Anyone that's walked with Jesus knows this. He gets the glory. His power is perfected in our weakness. He gets the glory. You get the participation trophy. That's how this works. Some of you don't feel adequate for the task of proclaiming this gospel because you know your heart. Jesus knows it all the more. And he says, go. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't feel adequate for the task? Great. You can be on our team. Jesus loves to use broken people to accomplish his otherworldly purposes. God could send them a ranger out the helicopter. But in his mysterious love, he's partial to the obedience with the knapsack and the crocs. What's the alternative? To not participate? to not join our Father when we have more than an invitation, but a commissioning to join him in the most loving, most worthy cause the world could ever know, pointing sinners home and walking with our King who promises to be with us every step of the way. The late German theologian Helmut Thelicke sums up well what is so great about joining God in this venture. He says, heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, whether this be white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar, but rather in what we shall become, namely companions of our King. What a blessing and an honor to be found faithful by him to walk with our God in the family business. This brings us to the third servant. Pick up with me in verse 20. Then another came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? This section of the parable, it's a helpful reminder. Following Jesus obeying his commands, it's not a passive investment strategy. There is no staying on the sidelines of the Christian life. It's worth reemphasizing here that we're not to presume from this interaction that the nobleman is corrupt, only that he is perceived as such in the story in the mind of his third servant. See how the servant justifies his actions as a virtue, not admitting fault, but insinuating that the fault lies with the master. Is this not reminiscent of 
how we as humans in our fallness have always interacted and made excuses before God. It's reminiscent of Adam in the garden blaming God when he says in Genesis 3, 12, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. But the king doesn't defend his character, nor does he enter into dispute with the servant. Instead, he highlights the fault in his logic. Simply wrapping the mina in a cloth and stashing it in a drawer, it shows the contradiction of the third servant's statement. If he really believed that this nobleman was harsh, he would have at least put this mina in the bank to assuage his master's greed, that it would accrue interest uh, in his absence. Too often, disobedience is masked in straw man arguments because it's, it's easier in a rebellious heart to peddle in shallow platitudes than to deal with the implications of what it means to actually be accountable to this holy and good God. So we hide behind these shells of arguments. Regardless of people's misconceptions about the true nature of God, he has accurately revealed himself to his creation, and his character is not up for debate. He is gracious, slow to anger, altogether good and lovely. And Jesus effectively conveys all of those attributes about himself, even in the way he has the nobleman respond to the third servant in the story. And it's in his response that we will close in on our final part of this parable as we come to examine the call to faithfulness. Picking back up with me in verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him. Give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you, that everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. There is correlation between kingdom obedience and kingdom legacy. Those who are proving faithful in the kingdom, it only makes sense that God is going to entrust more of his gospel work to them. As we've seen, there is blessing and being part of what our Heavenly Father is doing. It's that type of privilege that the unfaithful servant misses out on. Notice how the third servant loses what he's entrusted with, yet he's still considered a servant. His punishment is not destruction or removal from the kingdom, but instead it's one of missed opportunity and the forfeited blessing of taking part in the business of his master. His soul may still be saved, but the results of his life's pursuit are to his shame. What does a third servant look like practically in, in our day? It's the Christian who's quite eager to receive God's grace and blessing, but has no appetite for being uncomfortable for the cause of Christ. It's the believer who justifies a life that doesn't reflect radical obedience, but instead it takes solace in the fact that the kids are in church and they're well-behaved. 
or it's those who take great pride and hold to traditional conservative values and express genuine outrage by the lies and the dysfunction that are celebrated in our culture, even as their own hearts are cold and turned off to uh, the point of action towards sinners that espouse these false claims. We can have all the great theology in the world, but if we are not willing to enter into the broken and the dark and the lost places and exclaim the hope of the gospel, we have very little to show for our life in Christ. Can I encourage you, if, if that describes where you are in your heart this morning, so long as it is today, and there is breath in your lungs, and our Lord has not yet returned, it's not too late to enter the market. You have not missed your window of opportunity. We even heard this morning about amazing opportunities this week that our church is uniquely positioned to join in on what God is doing, to encourage our brothers and sisters who are about to go overseas to walk alongside of them in this kingdom work and to be able to, to root the work that they do in their training even to the local church here so that the gospel would be known in places in our city where it is not yet known. You have not missed your opportunity. Your life doesn't have to be as the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3.15, one that is made for straw that burns up along the way. As you may simply limp into eternity, the gospel always scales, and there is still time on the clock to enter the market and see the returns that only God produces. So be resolved that a life lived and leveraged for Christ's glory is always better than one that is not. The paradox of the Christian life is that the more it is laid down and given away, the more abundantly full it becomes. Some will be called to overseas missions, some to volunteer with local nonprofits, some to spread hope to those they rub shoulders with in the school pickup line. Others will provide services and meet practical needs with their skills. And in all of it, each of us called to proclaim this one true explicit gospel that has been entrusted to us by our master. This is the family business. Disciples, who deploy their gifts faithfully and joyously cannot begin to anticipate the results, but they will be astonished by them. Will the return on my investment be 100 mina, 10 mina, 0.000563? The Lord knows, and obedience is always precious in his sight. Interest on kingdom investments always compound, and heaven is going to be filled with surprises. This brings us to our last and our most challenging verse of this parable. It's one that forces us to soberly think about the fate of the subjects who fail to acknowledge the nobleman as their king. Read with me in verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. What are we supposed to do with this? 
This is so harsh to our ears, even ears that have been redeemed. Bring them here? Kill them in front of me? As unsettling as these words are, be assured there are no heartless or problematic passages in all of Scripture. And in the case of this verse, what our current culture would label as problematic, Jesus points us prophetically to something so much deeper. Yes, Jesus puts these words in the mouth of the noble ruler because he wants his listeners to grapple with the severity of sin, to sit in the horror of damnation and eternal separation from the love of God. This is the fate of all who do not bow the knee to Lord Jesus in this life. We must reconcile that. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I implore you to consider these things and trust and hope in what comes next. Because even more than focusing on what the nobleman says in the story, we would do well to focus our hearts on what Jesus does when this story ends. The noble ruler calls for his mockers to be brought out and slaughtered, other translations say, before him. But it is, in fact, Jesus who flips the script. He is making a beeline for Jerusalem. It's just 17 miles away from where he is sharing this story, and he knows what awaits him there. It is he who will choose instead to be brought out before his mockers and be slaughtered on their behalf, killed while they watch. See, Satan would love nothing more than for us to shrink back from the hostility we see in our culture or even to shrink back from the more difficult verses of our Bibles. Because he knows that if we don't engage this hostility head on with the hope and the power of the gospel, they will be destroyed in that hostility and we will be found disobedient to the commands of our king. In our flesh, we can be tempted to shrink back for fear of being ridiculed or labeled unloving when in fact, hear this, the most loving thing you as a follower of Jesus could ever do is to take this gospel and to show, point lost souls to the beauty of who God is and what he has done to reconcile us back to himself. It is the only hope that they have is if they hear this message. Lost people, they're going to do lost people things. That's not going to surprise us, nor should it offend us. Rather than bemoan the culture, may it be said that we as a people here at RCBC are blown away by this gospel. Not bemoaning a culture, but blown away by Christ in the place of sinners, rejoicing and celebrating what he has done in our own lives, even as others get to have a front row seat to it. This temptation to shrink back, it's, it's not new to us in the 21st century. The Apostle Paul speaks directly to it in the opening of his second letter to Timothy. And it's it, with these words passed down to us that we will close our time this morning. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace 
was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed. What you heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God and we thank you that you invite us into the work of your redemption. Even though we are so unworthy and so inadequate in and of ourselves, we praise you that you promise to go with us, that your word does not return void, and that we have a mission that cannot fail because we have a king who did not stay dead. You are so good. You are so kind. God, I pray that your goodness and kindness would just overflow in our lives, even this week, as we share that love with our city. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.